your Bibles, and I trust that you do, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 as we continue to look at this wonderful passage, this great encouraging passage for us, this gracious invitation by the one who is able to save and powerful to save, equipped to save, able to save. All of those things are who Christ is, and this is what we've been thinking and talking about as we've looked at this passage. Before we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this glorious day that you've given to us. It's glorious not because of the sunshine outside, although that is certainly a component of it, It's not glorious because of this building that we are in, that certainly is a component of it, but it's glorious because of why we have gathered here and whose focus we have placed our minds on, that is Jesus Christ. We are, in this passage, reminded of the importance of who Christ is and what he is in charge of and his sufficiency to save and his power to save. And help us to be mindful of these great and wonderful truths, and most importantly, help us to rest in them. The invitation to come is a continuous invitation. Every day your mercies are renewed, and your faithfulness is steadfast. As we read this morning, your long-suffering is higher than the heavens. You are so patient and kind to us, and every day you invite us to come and to rest in your finished work. We need do nothing more. As we're promised in this passage, your burden is easy and light. There is no encumbrance. There is no tediousness. There is simply delight and joy and peace in Christ. This is a wonderful truth for us, especially in the days in which we live. Tumult and turmoils and wars and rumors of wars and economic struggles and difficulties, yet... You are in charge of all these things, and the invitation still is extended. May we always, always be mindful of that. You are in charge. You're in control. We rest in all that you have done for us. We praise you this morning. We praise you and rejoice that we are known by you. We praise you for our salvation. In Christ's name, amen. One day, as I was passing into the field, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought that I could see Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Yes, there indeed was my righteousness, so that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could, say, could not say about me that I did not have righteousness, for it was standing there before him. I also saw that it was not my good feelings that made my righteousness better, and that my bad feelings did not make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. John Bunyan. This passage, I think, speaks to the truths that we find in Matthew chapter 11 and the gracious invitation to come 
Our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. My righteousness is in heaven, as Bunyan aptly says. Beginning with verse 25 in Matthew chapter 11, it reads as follows. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Of course, Christ is commenting on the report of the 70 who've come back to indicate that the gospel has gone forth and much has happened in response to it. People have been saved. Demons have been cast out. Um, uh, the kingdom is being established. In verse 26, we see this pause, this reflective pause. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Importantly, that reference to who in verse 28 is in reference to those who work to exhaustion in the context of attempting to achieve righteousness, which was the burden that had been placed upon the people to whom Christ was speaking at this time by the Pharisees of the day who had created such an overwhelming burden in terms of the dues that they must complete in order to achieve heaven. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are great words of encouragement, and what we find here, quite frankly, are some of the affirmations of the solas that are part and parcel of the Reformation, truths to which we hold dearly. We have the banners in the back that recite them for us, and we see here a focus on, on sola fide, solus Christus, and sola gratia in particular in these latter portions, and one could argue that soli deo gloria is contained in verse 27, and of course, we're basing this based on Scripture alone, so sola scriptura is also part and parcel of our passage. We have all five solas here illuminated for us. And then today, we're going to be really focusing on the issue of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Um, and what we find here is we have a gracious invitation to come to one who is able to save. Let's keep this in mind. We oftentimes lose sight, I think, of this important issue um, in Scripture, and we get caught up in other things that take our eyes off of the sufficiency of Christ. Bunyan correctly noted as one day when he was walking, it struck him that his righteousness is in heaven, and that righteousness never changes. That righteousness is always constant, even though Bunyan righteousness was not. There was vacillations in it. There was variances in it. There were good days. There were bad days. There were days when he acted as if he had no righteousness. There were days when he was on the pinnacle of righteousness, on the peak of it. Such is life for the redeemed. But we're reminded in Scripture that our righteousness is in heaven, and Jesus Christ here in this passage extends an invitation predicated upon that very fact. And what he's saying to these people is he's saying to them, come to me in simple, sincere faith. Notice the nature of the invitation in verse 28. Come to me. It's simple. It's easy. 
It's very clear. Come, come to me. There's nothing added. Do you notice that there's no conditions attached to me? Come to me if you are righteous. Come to me if you're having a good day. Come to me if you're okay right now. Come to me with some condition attached. Come to me repenting. That's not even there. We have fallen into a trap, I fear, in evangelicalism to misunderstand the meaning of the term repentance. Repentance is never the cause of salvation, it's the consequence of salvation. Let us be perfectly clear about this. Repentance does not cause your salvation. If I were to say to you that you must repent to be saved, you must say back to me, how much repentance? That must be always your response if someone tells you that. How much? When do I know I've reached it? Well, you would never have enough. Would you? Ever? It's simple faith. Notice the nature of the invitation from Christ himself is to simply come. Come to me. Why? Because he is our righteousness. Only he is righteous. Only he can extend the invitation. Notice that it's not the disciples extending the invitation. It's not Matthew extending the invitation. It's not Mark. It's not Luke. It's not John. It's Christ himself. And he has the authority to extend the invitation in all sincerity, and he will see it to its end because he has the authority to do that. So the focus here today for us is indeed one of the fact that our Our hope, our rest, is solely in Jesus Christ, Christ alone. There's no precondition. There are those today who are imposing preconditions, Doug Wilson with his federal vision heresy, John Piper with his final justification, future salvation, others who are imposing conditions connected to repentance that are unrelated to salvation, but have been imposed upon the people that create a burden that is similar to what we are seeing here. Indeed, Jesus Christ would say it's so very easy. Just come to me. You, You know who I am. You've seen what I have done. I have performed miracles. I have healed the lame. I have raised the dead. I have caused the blind to see. I have done numerous things. We've recited all the things that up to this point in Matthew that Matthew himself has even noted about who Jesus Christ is. So we know that he can save. We know that he is indeed the God-man, the Christ, the one who was promised. He is sufficient to save. It is the gospel, pure and simple, what we find here today. Notice the object of the invitation. It's not come to church. It's not go to the synagogue. It's not speak to the rabbi. It's come to me. Now, you end up going to church as a consequence of coming to him because that's an aspect of your delightful, happy response to the fact that God has saved you. You do those things out of delight, not begrudgingly out of some burdensome duty, which unfortunately I think many Christians have that perspective of time about churches. That's the fault of many people and many things, improper teaching from the pulpit, turning church into what it wasn't intended to be, a litany of other things, just flat-out disobedience. But notice the object. The invitation is there. 
come to who? Me. Who's me? It's Jesus Christ. Why Jesus Christ? Because only he can save. There is no other name under heaven by which a man must be saved. It's Jesus Christ. It's Christ alone. It's not a combination of you and Jesus Christ. He doesn't say to these people, come to me with your self-righteousness too. Come to me with your good deeds and your good works and you can be saved. He simply says, come to me. That simple, it can be a great faith, it can be a mustard seed faith, but the object is what matters. Small faith and a great object is still saving faith. Bunyan deals with this in his Pilgrim's Progress. He deals with people who have great faith and he deals with people of small faith. He himself, characterized by the character of Pilgrim, Bunyan struggled throughout his life with issues related to assurance and the adequacy of his faith and the journey that is portrayed as oftentimes self-biographical of his own life. But he always pulled himself out of that quagmire, that sloth of despond, if you will, by focusing back on Jesus Christ. And this is the call for us even today. If you're sitting here today as a believer who has perhaps been saved since a young age, this is a reminder to you as well that it's still all about Jesus Christ every single day. We have been told that we are to preach the gospel to ourselves all the time, and I agree with that. We need to be reminded. Jerry Bridges would encourage us to do that. Milton Vincent did that in his gospel primer. We took the time to study it for the purpose of being reminded that every single moment of every single day, we need this invitation. We need this gospel. So the object, there's no precondition, and the invitation is to one who can save who is able to save, indeed willing to save. How do I know that he's willing to save? Look at John 6, 37 with me. John 6, 37. Let's begin with verse 35. John chapter 6. Just a beautiful passage here. A powerful passage, a clarifying passage, a profound passage, a passage packed with doctrine. Jesus said to them, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, notice this, he who comes to me, me alone. And again, there's no preconditions. Notice the simple nature of the invitation again. He who comes to me will not hunger. He will not hunger. There's, there's, no, there's nothing left over after the coming in faith to him. There's nothing else for you to add to it, is there? There's no good work. There's no additional your own bread, so to speak. There's nothing about your life that you add to the mix. It's simply to come to him in humble faith. Remember the predicate of the, con- of, the con- of the conversation in Matthew chapter 11 is that God resists the proud but gives grace to the lowly, the humble, those who come in a, in a, in a sense of inadequacy 
They understand that they are to the end of themselves. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. That is the first act that the Holy Spirit creates in a person. It is a recognition in their newness of life that, man, I am in desperate need of something outside of myself. External righteousness because I don't have anything. Now, of course, the Pharisees thought they had it, did they not? They thought they had all that they needed. Nicodemus comes to Jesus Christ in the dead of night. He's going to cut a deal because he thinks he's in. If you would want me in the kingdom is basically the predicate for Nicodemus coming. I'm the one here first. You want me. I'm the leader. If there's anybody who's in, it's me. Jesus, you must be born again. Come to me, Nicodemus. Come to me. Now here in John 6, we see this. John, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. That's a promise. Your salvation is complete. There is nothing in the future that you have to do or wait for. You're no longer hungry at the moment of coming. It's over with. You don't have to wait to find out if there's going to be some additional justification that you have to experience based upon what you've done. There's no future salvation here in the context of this passage nor anywhere else in Scripture. The hunger is over instantaneously. It's immediate. Lazarus come forth. He didn't come out partially alive. He came out fully alive. He didn't even come out limping. He wasn't even dragging a foot. He wasn't missing an arm. He came out whole and complete because he had been summoned by the sovereign creator of the universe, the Christ. He must come. And no one else could call him out. Because, indeed, are we not told in Matthew chapter 11 that it is up to Jesus in terms of who he reveals himself to. We'll see that here. And he who believes in me will never thirst. No hunger, no thirst, that's instantaneous. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So they were still thinking that there's something else I've got to do. All that the Father gives me will come to, look at the phrase again, it's there, come to me. So the Father has given a particular group of people to the Son to save. Those are the elect. You can't get around it. I'm sorry. And the one who comes to me, this is what I was focusing on, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Some may say to me, well, pastor, if I, what, if, what, if, what if God won't save me? You've just been told. If you come to him, he will save you. If you come to him, he will save you. I, honestly, there's nothing much simpler than this. If you come to him, he will save you. He is faithful to save. He is the author of our salvation. He is the one who initiates it and the one who ends it. So we see this. Verse 38 plays into verse 27 of Matthew chapter 11. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, 
Can't lose your salvation, friends. Sorry. I know we live in a community where that's the predominant perspective, but you cannot lose your salvation, ever. If you can lose your salvation, then God is not God. You are. You cannot lose your salvation, ever. Now, you get to rest in that truth. Do you not want to lay your head down on the pillow at night or get on a motorcycle or on a bucking horse or anything else for that matter or an airplane or whatever it might be? Understanding that you're not going to be lost in any context? This is the will of him who sent me that all who he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That is a promise that I absolutely revel in. We cannot separate ourselves from that profound truth. It doesn't say that he's going to raise me up on the last day predicated upon some condition some final analysis to me, oh, that is such a lamentable error. I, I hate it. It creates confusion and doubt. It erodes assurance. Jesus Christ saves. He, what, what kind of an invitation is it if he says, come to me, but you're not going to really know if you've come to me until sometime way in the future. And you're going to have to stand in a big line with a lot of people who are sweating bullets because you're not quite sure if they've made it or not. Are you serious? It's just simply wrong on so many levels. And why John Piper is giving a voice at major conferences right now is utterly baffling to me. I don't get it. But back in Matthew... We're reminded again of the focus of the invitation. Oh, this is so good. Come to me, the invitation, no condition, he is the object. And who, to whom is he speaking? All who are weary and heavy laden. Okay, with what? With their work righteousness, with their with their, their sense of, of, of having to do more in order to stay in, right? Now, we understand that salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.9 tells us that. We understand from 11.25 that God has a plan in the context of salvation. He resists the proud and the haughty. He gives grace to the lowly and the humble, those who come with no sense of, of self-sufficiency or adequacy in themselves, those who have a recognition of the fact that they need this righteousness. This is what happens in the context, as I noted, in our salvation. That's, uh, that's important. And so he says, all who are weary, who work to exhaustion. Don't you remember the rich young ruler, oh, what does he do? He comes to Christ. Well, I've kept the law since my youth. I've done everything. He's coming. Look, okay, so let's think about this for a minute. How is the rich young ruler coming to Christ? 
What's he saying to Christ? Look at me. He's not looking at Christ. He wants Christ to look at him, which is to do what? It is to unchrist him. Right? The rich young ruler falls into the trap of unchristing Christ because he's saying to Christ, you're not enough, look at me. Right? Look at me. Look what I've done. I've kept it since I was a young man. I've done it all. I'm it. And Christ says what to him? Okay, fine. Go out and sell all that you have. Give it all away. Then come back and talk to me. He's not saying he's going to accept him in that context, but he's imposing upon him the burden of the law. Is he not? He, the heaviness of it, the weightiness of it. And it says what in the passage about the rich young ruler? He went away despondent, sad. Just a powerful, it's, it's, it's interesting that, that with the colloquy in the rich young ruler passage and compared to this, you see how Christ responded to the rich young ruler. He chose to do what? To not reveal himself to the rich young ruler. Because the revelation of himself to somebody results in the humbleness of spirit by and through the work of the Holy Spirit and the process of regeneration. These who are coming come to Christ in verse 28 in the context of understanding based upon the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit that they are indeed weary and heavy laden. and they have nothing. They've been working. They aren't offering to themselves. He's not saying to them, come and bring all your works to me. Come and bring all that you've done for me. Come and do all these things. We'll get to Matthew chapter 7 where people would say and do this. Lord, Lord, did we not do great things in your name? And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. They weren't coming to him in humility and humbleness blessed are the poor in spirit that sense of poverty understanding that you must look outside of yourself the weariness and heaviness is so significant here i love this language because this really speaks to us I think we even as the redeemed of Christ find ourselves here again. We, we see ourselves in the context of always working, always plodding, always trotting, always on that merit treadmill that Jerry Bridges speaks of so eloquently in transforming grace. We have stayed in the context of being weary and heavy laden. We, we, we need to understand this truth because in this truth comes true rest in Christ. True rest. You may say to me, well, pastor, doesn't the, isn't the Christian called to live a Christian life? Well, absolutely. We, we see the imperatives. We have them in chapter 3 of Colossians and 4. We have them in 2 Peter chapter 1. We have them in Ephesians chapter 3 and 4. We have them elsewhere in Scripture. Christ would even say, take up your cross and follow me. That's an imperative. But it's based on an indicative that's related to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We're doing those imperatives because of what he has done for us. I'm not doing them, bringing them back to him. And if you are, you're in, you're in error. You're kind of like the rich young ruler in that way. You don't, you don't keep coming back to him 
and saying, look what I did, look what I did, look what I did, look what I did. You keep reveling in the fact that you're even able to talk to him. That you're part and parcel of what he is all about. That you are now resting in his finished work. By faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone, based upon the content of Scripture alone. That's what's happening. Come to me. Now look. Look at the, look at the expanse of the invitation. All who are, it's all. Imagine what's in that group. The self-righteous. The proud, the murderers, the homosexuals, the sexually lascivious, the robbers, the thieves, the arrogant, the hard husbands, the mean wives, the disobedient children. They're all invited. Such were some of you. There's no categories. There's no, he doesn't say, come to me, who, you who are sort of righteous. Come to me, you who are kind of there a little bit. You've kind of arrived. You're kind of on the fringe. You kind of get it a little bit. I want you. That's what we tend to do, don't we? Even in our evangelism, we look, we look for the people who kind of get it, maybe, a little bit. They're easy to witness to. The heretics, they're hard. Who wants to talk to a heretic, right? Who wants to talk to some of these people that, 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 are, that are, they're categorized in such a way that they're unreachable? Now, we don't reach them based upon a compromise with their position. That's the problem with the evangelical church today. We're creating categories now where people are identified by their sin. We accept them in their sin and hope that somehow we're going to change them by accepting them. No, come to me and abandon that. That gets left behind. That's the consequence of salvation. Well, he says, take, he says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. The invitation um, is, is open. It's generous. It's extended to all who are present, all who are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary and heavy laden? Are you here today and don't know Jesus Christ and life seems to be a conundrum to you and you're weary and you're heavy laden? And, and you're trying to figure out a way to get to heaven, perhaps. Well, here's the simple answer to it. There's no need to be weary and heavy laden because Jesus Christ has taken all of that obligation on. All the weariness and heavy ladenness associated with complying with the law, Christ has fulfilled. All that the law required, Christ has fully satisfied. The certificate of debt has been nailed to the cross and canceled, Colossians chapter 2. And here's the promise. The promise to those who come is simple and straightforward. I will give you rest. Now, notice that the only person who can give rest is who? Jesus Christ. You can't give yourself sort of rest. You, you don't get to take self-righteous naps. Okay? It's only Jesus Christ who can give the rest. Correct? I will give you. That's a promise. 
If someone comes into my office as a lawyer and says to me, well, my neighbor said that he's going to give me something, and he promised me that, that's a legal thing. And he can base an argument on that promise. He can take legal action against the neighbor for not fulfilling the promise because he didn't give it to him. Jesus Christ promises, and he can do it and will fulfill it. Why? Because on the cross, he said what? It is finished. And more importantly, the stone was rolled away. And he exited the tomb. Death was conquered. Now, in significance, and we often overlook this, he then did what? Some several days later, 30, 40 days later, he did what? He ascended and went where? To the right hand of the Father, indicating a place of authority and acceptance. And we know from Revelation chapter 5, because he had conquered death and the grave, he was handed the book that had the seals to control everything then. Everything. It just doesn't get much better than this. I don't know if you're having fun, but I am. I, I don't know. I could stand up here all day and talk about this. I, I won't do that to you. But. So just that little passage. Look at that little verse, 28, come to me. Look at this, this is so full of such wonderful truth. And I will give you rest. It's, and it's a rest that is so wonderful and so, dare I even use the word, intoxicating, just peaceful, complete, easy rest. You know, in verse 29, Christ makes reference to taking a yoke. So he says, interestingly enough, he doesn't tell them to go find another yoke. Go find a yoke. No, take my yoke. What, what is his yoke? Well, his yoke is the complete fulfillment of the law. He's done it all. Take my yoke. It's easy. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Oh, well, there again. Who is the object of the learning? Jesus Christ. What am I going to learn about Jesus Christ? Do you think Christology is important? Do you think a book like Colossians is important? And I'm so glad that we found Lois's notebook because it's got a lot of good information in it, I'm sure. We'll put this day down on the calendar, we'll make it Notebook Sunday. But Paul tells us that everything is subsumed and consumed and completed in Jesus Christ. And he uses that as the predicate for moving into the latter part of the epistle to encourage you to be a good husband and a good wife. Why are you a good husband and a good wife? It's because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Not to become more saved. But Jesus says here in verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Now, we're familiar with yokes. This would have been something that the, the listeners, the hearers of this uh, discourse would have understood because it was common in that day for people to carry fairly significant weight and loads on these yokes that they would lay across their shoulders and would have either buckets on or, or bags or baskets, and they would be filled with produce or bricks or 
wheat or water or whatever, and they were heavy. And so he's using this metaphor to communicate to the fact that, that his yoke is not like that. And it's also in contrast to what the Pharisees were requiring of them because their yoke was heavy. Their yoke was like the yoke that they had to carry physically, but in the spiritual context, because it required them to be constantly working. And at this point in time, the Pharisees had added thousands of rules and regulations to the law. So it was even more than just what the Torah contained in the context of the communicated law, but also more added on by the different rabbis. And they kept adding them on. Every day was a new one. They kept changing stuff. No one could quite figure out what was going on. It was tedious to the point of exhaustion. And so Christ is saying to them, you leave that behind and you come to me and I will give you a yoke that is basically empty because I carried all the burden for you. It's done. It's over with. Come to me. Come to me. Now, look what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Don't listen to the rabbis. Don't listen to these people. But listen to what I am saying. Remember what I have done. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only one who can rectify and resolve this for you. Learn from me. And he reminds them of this. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Now that harkens back, does it not, to verse 25? Because therein lies the idea of how we come to him. In that sense of poverty of spirit, in that context of blind Bartimaeus crying out, thou son of David, have mercy on me. That's it. We have turned salvation into such a conundrum. The simple gospel is what we're called to proclaim, and this is what we say. Isn't it interesting that, that, that this is the message that Christ gives? This is his salvation message. Come to me. It's the gospel. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you, look at the promise, you will find rest for your souls. Now, it's interesting he doesn't promise them their best life now. Oops, I'm sorry. Why? Well, because he will tell them later, take up your cross, follow me, and if they hated me, they hated you. The Bible, the New Testament, and the Gospels in particular, it's a, it's a, it, the suffering is there. It's not triumphalism, which is an error the church has made in some context. We have missed the point in communicating that Christians suffer. We, we know from Revelation chapter 6 that there are horsemen that have been let loose by God himself, Christ himself, and been summoned and let loose, and they're wreaking havoc around the world. Christians are being persecuted, we're being called to persevere, and God is bringing judgment upon the unregenerate. That's not triumphant. It is for Christ, but not for the rest, it seems. So he says that the invitation is to take his yoke. Now this is not a necessary condition of salvation. It's not a taking that indicates that they have to do a work, but it's an indication of the fact that there is something in Christ that they need, and when they have it, they'll find rest. 
It's a completeness of the righteousness that they need. He's speaking to that idea, the adequacy of his righteousness, the completeness of his righteousness, the sufficiency of his work. Learn from me. Take from me because I've done it. It is finished. Look what he says in verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This again stands in stark contrast to what the Pharisees had to offer. It stands in stark contrast to what many of us are being offered today by so many. So many conditions being imposed. So many things being imposed. You'll notice, I never say to you, come to church so, so God loves you more. God couldn't love you anymore. I don't tell you to come to church because you need to be more saved. You're already as saved as you can be. I challenge you to come to church and to use your spiritual gifts and to be involved in the body because that's what Christians do and they want to do it and they love to do it because of this. That's the rest. Resting in Christ doesn't mean you just go home and sit in a dark room for the rest of your life. No, resting in Christ means that you're sufficient and complete in all that he has done. You're just cozy and, and, and all comfortable in the context of I'm not having to do more. It's all done for me forever. Oftentimes, though, what we do is we take our eyes off of Christ. We go back to the yoke. We faith in our faithfulness rather than in Christ. Remember, Christ is a consistent object of this discourse. The constant directive is to Christ. He's not calling you to faith in your faithfulness. He's not calling you to do more work. He's simply calling you to come to him because he's already done it all. That's it. Thomas Wilcox was the pastor of a small Baptist church in the city of London. From 1622 to 1687, he lived. Little is known about him, but he preached a sermon and it's the only thing that we have of his. The title of the sermon was A Guide to Eternal Glory. And in this sermon, Wilcox encourages his readers to fix their eyes on Christ, and this is what's happening here. And what does he mean in terms of fixing our eyes on Christ? Well, there are basically three ways that we can approach that, that's that, that point. We fix our eyes on Christ by applying his blood, we, we understand when he talks about learning from him and we, we speak of the idea of coming to him, we do so because there is a sufficiency in what he has done. His blood, every drop of it is sufficient to save. And it does save those to whom it is applied. Always, 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 always. And you cannot undo that, ever. We fix our eyes on Christ by, pri by prizing his righteousness. Again, this is what Christ is teasing out here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We prize his righteousness, not our own self-righteousness. We understand that he is gentle or meek and humble in heart, speaking to the very characteristics that, that, that are part and parcel of the redeemed. And the consequences of that understanding of, of prizing his righteousness is that you find rest for your souls. 
Now, it's interesting that he says souls because souls speak to a spiritual state that exists in the context of both our present and our future. Our souls are within us. It's our seat of emotions. It's our hearts in the context of the mind that's used in Scripture. It's a resting that is attendant to a deep spiritual sense of knowing that you do not have to do anything more. We fix our eyes on Christ by esteeming His priesthood. He is our intermediary. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate. And His advocacy is constantly based upon His righteousness. He's not advocating your righteousness. His intermediary role is to act as a priest for you to present Himself as the sacrifice once and for all. This is what he is saying, and I think Wilcox's point is, is well said. And I want to read just briefly to you something that he said from his sermon that I found to be very, very, very profound. Men, he says this, men talk bravely of believing while whole and sound. Few know it truly. Christ is the mystery of the Scripture, and grace is the mystery of Christ. Believing is the most wonderful thing in the world. Add anything of your own to it and you spoil it. Now this is Mr. Wilcox preaching back in the 1600s. Don't you love it? Christ will not so much as look at it, he says. When you believe and come to Christ, you must leave behind your your own righteousness and bring nothing but your sin. Oh, that is hard. Leave behind all your holiness, your sanctification, your duties, your humblings, etc., and bring nothing but your wants and miseries, else Christ is not fit for you, nor you for Christ. Either Christ will be the only Redeemer and Mediator, or, or you and Christ will never agree. Isn't it interesting that in the context of this, Christ is exclusive It's the hardest thing in the world, he says, to take Christ alone for righteousness. That's to acknowledge him as Christ. If you join anything to him of your own, you unchrist him. Whatever comes in when you go to God for acceptance besides Christ, call it antichrist. Bid it be gone. Make only Christ's righteousness triumphant. All besides that must fall if Christ stands and you shall rejoice in the day of the fall thereof. Wow. Oh, wow. In all doubtings, fears, and storms of conscience, look at Christ continually. Don't argue with Satan, for, for that is what he desires. Bid him go to Christ and he will answer him. It is his office as he is our advocate, his office to answer the law as our surety, his office to answer justice as our mediator. All he is sworn to that office, put Christ upon it. If you will do anything yourself for satisfaction for sin, you renounce Christ the righteous who was made sin for you. Satan may corrupt scripture, but he cannot answer scripture. It is Christ's word of mighty authority. Christ foiled Satan with it in Matthew 4. In all the scripture there is not a bad word against a poor sinner stripped of self-righteousness. Nay, it plainly points out this man to be the subject of the grace of the gospel and none else. Believe but Christ's willingness and that will make you willing. Willing. 
If you find that you cannot believe, remember it's Christ's work to grant faith to you. Put him upon it. Call upon him. And he goes on to say this, mourn for your unbelief, perhaps, but that is setting up of guilt in the conscience above Christ and undervaluing the merits of Christ, accounting his blood an unholy thing, a common and unsatisfying thing. What he is saying is that oftentimes people will come in the context of just being lamenting and mourning and, oh, woe is me, and, ah, no, oh, woe is me. But he said that's a self-righteous mourning, and that's not acceptable to Christ either. That's account his blood is an holy thing. You're asking him to look at your mourning. Do you see this? It's an unsatisfying thing. You complain much of yourself. Does your sin make you look more at Christ and less at self? If so, then complaining is but hypocrisy. To be looking at duties, graces, enlargements when you should be looking at Christ, that's lamentable. Looking at them will but make you proud. But looking at Christ's grace will make you humble. By grace you are saved. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Thank you, Preacher Wilcox. Can't wait to meet him. Do you, do you understand these truths, friends? Is this where you are? Have you come to him empty-handed? Or are you clinging on to something else? Are you clinging to some shred of self-confidence, some, some sense in which you think that you've done it, you've cut it, you've made it? That's unthinkable. That is to unchrist him. You're saying to Christ, you're not enough. You're saying to him, I need more than just you. I, I need some of me. That's the rich young ruler who went away. The implication of the story, he went away unsaved. Come to Christ. Have you done that? Have you heard the invitation. You've heard it multiple times today. You cannot say that this was not an evangelistic message. You've been told, come to him repeatedly in Scripture. Come to me. Come to me. I trust that you have, and I trust that you're resting, and if you haven't, the invitation is graciously extended to you. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you for the exhortation and the encouragement, the reminder that we rest in the finished Christ, in the, in the finished work of Christ alone. We add nothing. We take nothing. We simply come with empty hands, clinging to Christ. May we be forgiven for unchristing Christ. May we be forgiven, Lord, for clinging to our self-righteousness, our mournings, our performances, whatever it might be as being sufficient and adequate for our salvation. May we always be looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen. God bless you.